This is like a this is a day of murder. Uh, let's let's talk about providence instead. Uh, the question was, what are God's works of providence? The answer was, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. Uh, we decided last time that that was a really jankily worded sentence, um, and that maybe it would be uh, more intuitive to say. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preservation and governance uh, of all His creatures and all their actions. Uh, the word's not in the Bible, but it is a, definitely a biblical concept, and it's not alone in, in being that combination of things. So we left off with a great cliffhanger when I told you there are two parts to God's uh, providence laid out here, preserving and governing. And then I was just like, I'm not going to tell you anything about them. And now here you are to hear about them. So let's talk first about preserving. Let's flip to a whole bunch of different passages in talking about it. Psalm 36.6, who's got that? Acts 17, 24 to 25, a little preview of where we'll be in Acts in a little while. And again, a reminder, providence is from the same uh, word as provision, the same root as provide, providing. Uh, we're talking about how God, having created us, provides for our needs uh, and even the needs we don't know we have. And even when we try and push him away, he often in his providence provides for us what we truly need, uh, not what we want or what we demand. Uh, Psalm 36.6, who's got that? Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. All right, and certainly uh, the idea that God has in his palm of the ha his hands both humans and animals is a thread that runs through the entire scripture. We talked about the two sparrows uh, for a penny, and not one falls to the ground without God knowing um, last time that, that God is indeed... Uh, powerfully involved in, you know, the currents, the tides, the everything uh, on a global and universal scale, and yet also intimately, imminently involved with us on a, a kind of micro level, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, every animal, every person. Uh, how about Acts 17, 24, and 25? God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Okay, so this is Paul before uh, the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where there are people who sit around and do nothing but talk about and exchange the latest ideas. And so they give Paul a little audience, and he quotes some of their own poets to them, and that's what he's doing here. Uh, and speaking of the one true God who he identifies with their unknown God, to whom they have an altar, uh, he says that this God gives all people life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need to be served by human hands, but we need him to keep on breathing and, what's more, to keep on existing. Uh, and this naturally flows from creation, because God created, we didn't use this term much when we were talking about creation, but he created ex nihilo, that's Latin for out of nothing, 
uh, and it's at the crux of some creation debates and things, that God created everything out of nothing, which makes him the most powerful being there is. Uh, And when he created everything, now we have these rules about how the amount of some total of energy and, and matter in the universe remains constant. We can't make any. God made it all out of nothing. So if he makes us out of nothing and he makes everything out of nothing, ultimately you follow it back far enough, he must preserve it as well. If God didn't uphold you and me and those chairs and that pulpit, they would simply return to the nothing that they started out. And when you think about that, God's forbearance becomes all the more just amazing. God's grace that when people... I mean, good grief. In the West today, the amount of arrogance with which people openly scoff at the notion of the scriptures and there being a God and, and just mock and deride that not only is God holding back judgment, which he is doing, he's also upholding that person to continue doing that. Uh, and that is, that is something, uh, that, that God's power infuses everything. And if it doesn't, and I don't mean that in a, in a Eastern mystical sense, but that if he didn't continually uphold and continually um, sustain everyone and everything, it would just like at the end of uh, that sad Avengers movie. Uh, Psalm 104:29, thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. God takes away, hides his face from us, that's it. Uh, so his continually keeping us before him is how he keeps us around, keeps us living. Uh, any thoughts on God's preserving? Do you ever think about this? It's a bit of a head trip. When do you think about it, Lisa? When does this come to mind? I mean, really, every time, I, every time I'm sitting quietly and just taking a breath, I go, oh, thank you. Okay. I got that one. So God's sustaining us becomes reason for ongoing, continual gratitude. Now, I mean, even if we're in the midst of trials and we go, God, why would you let that happen to me? Under that still is the question of, I exist. God, why would you let that keep happening to me? Thank you. Uh, yeah, so, so God's involvement with us has to be intimate, has to be an imminent near-at-hand thing, or there we go. This is why I think when people say, um, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus, I go, that one's not in the Bible and maybe isn't as good a phrase. Everyone's already got a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, through him, everyone was created. Uh, by him, you are being preserved and if you are not in Christ, then he is your judge. Very personal stuff already. What we need is for that relationship to become a relationship of blessing, which happens by grace through faith. Uh, you were about to say something else. Sorry. I was about to say I say goodnight to my dog every night, and I say I'm planning to see you in the morning. Mm. I say goodnight to my dog. I say goodnight, sleep well, most likely kill you in the morning. Ah, that's, ah, that's from the Princess Bride. I don't really say that. Anyone else think about God's preserving, or is that something that's just, I mean, it's, it's, you're always dealing with it, so it's almost like, it's so, it's like, does a fish know it's wet? Yeah. You think about it more when you're praying for someone who's 
really ill or had mm -hmm. an accident or something like that, I think you think a lot more of it at those times because then you start thinking like, you pray for it, but then you also say whatever your will is. And so if God's will is to keep preserving versus not keep preserving, like that's a hard thing to deal with a lot of times. And yet when we, when we pray for someone who's ill to recover, um, it might be helpful to remember that this is the God we're praying to who created and has preserved them every day, even to that very moment. Uh, and so he's very much able, no matter what the situation. No, I don't think that the question is whether he's able. Mm -hmm. No, I'm saying, I'm saying it might be not just on one on one side of the thing. It might be kind of um, a source of uncertainty. On the other side, it should also be a source of, of comfort during those times. Well, I got one. Yeah. Like, uh, almost getting into a car accident. Mm. Kind of one second faster. Mm -hmm. At that time, that's when I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah, preserved you. Yeah. You, were, you were annoyed that you were running late or whatever earlier in the morning, you know, and you're like, oh, if I'd been on time, I would have been in there. Of course, then you have to ask, when I do get in an accident, uh, or yeah, the one who did, maybe they had it coming. Although I got rear-ended badly a week ago. I don't know what I did. Trying to just go visit a guy and bring him communion. Uh, somebody look up for me Proverbs 16.9. We're going to talk about his governing. So uh, the ongoing sustaining and preserving is almost just like uh, the, the zero that God has set. You know, he's going to continue. It's a promise intrinsic in his creation of the universe and his speaking of the universe as going on uh, to the day of judgment and beyond, of us having um, souls being made in the image of God and, and being uh, everlasting. The governing, though, is more intentional, case-by-case um, -case type thing. And perhaps this is more, even though your life is preserved when you don't get smashed in that car wreck, this may be more, that may be more an example of the governing in which God... Uh, in his transcendence above everything, causes things to work out in a certain way. God, God is not blown away by the butterfly effect. He can use it. Um, if you're not familiar with that, it's a great movie with Ashton Kutcher. I'm just kidding. It's an idea that if a butterfly, butterfly flaps its wings in you know, the Amazon, uh, the ripple effects of that one thing affect everything so that you can't have Doc Brown going back in time with a time machine because even just like sneezing and someone says, God bless you, could mean that Biff Tannen's the mayor. I mean, you wouldn't need to do something big. Well, the idea that there's all these uh, chains of cause and effect, God is so powerful and omniscient that you can clearly see him using these things. You can trace these things back and go, I benefited from ultimately something just that seemed meaningless or seemed uh, wicked or, or whatever that happened years ago or far away. It's funny when you think about like how hard it is to get like a Rube Goldberg machine to mm. work and then God is doing that all the time with like trillions and trillions of little things. That go in and out of each other, the different Rube Goldberg machines, right. Right, yeah, and, and I mean we, it's impressive what we can accomplish 
with computers and things, but yeah, I, God's ability to play four-dimensional chess uh, is never going to be matched by any of us. Uh, how about uh, Proverbs 16.9? We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Oh, man, don't you hate that? We can make our plans, but the Lord determines his ste- our steps. Jewish proverb, man plans, God laughs. Yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, how Jewish that proverb is, but I, I hear that. That was, on, uh, that was on Arrested Development. It was one of the funniest exchanges ever, uh, where we, we make plans and God laughs. Uh, yeah, that's why I don't make plans anymore. I don't want to be laughed at. Yeah, but so much of, make, of life is making plans that, I mean, does God still laugh? Because it would just be the same joke over and over again. <laughs> Uh, but yes, yeah, certainly the notion that we're in control of our lives uh, runs counter to the idea of God's governing, which is part of God's providence. Uh, being a follower of Jesus or any follower of a, a monotheistic, all-powerful God means giving away that notion that I'm in charge and in control of everything happening. Uh, a great example of, of the governing providence would be fulfilled prophecy. Uh, and I think that's great evidence that, that providence is truly uh, a reality, that centuries and centuries earlier, God said, this Messiah is going to be born in this town. And, uh, you know, there's a reference to, to some of the most minute aspects of the birth of Christ. And then you look back and go, oh, wow, yeah, all of that. I mean, and a number of things. We talked about this when we first brought up uh, providence uh, about four questions ago. The number of things that had to be in place for the census to be called, the number of, uh, you know, whims of different emperors and, and people killing each other and taking their place and, and the, the giant scope of international politics and intrigue. And God says, well, but I can guarantee this is going to happen at the right time in the fullness of time. That's God's providence. A classic example also would be uh, Joseph. You remember uh, Joseph, who was, <coughs> excuse me, sold into slavery, and all sorts of stuff happened. It was just like, I mean, Joseph is like Job Jr. Uh, he's thrown in prison. He's falsely accused of of um, trying to rape his boss's wife when really she was trying to seduce him. Uh, and eventually, he's raised up again because he's so faithful, and God rewards him. And he's reunited with the guys who threw him in prison, and they're like, don't kill us. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God. Right. You, you, don't worry. You, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So that's God's governing, his providence to even override our intentions in the way he governs. I think that brings up the question, maybe you're going to go here. Um, so in that case, God meant it for good, but those individual people decided, like they actually did have the will to decide, this is what we're doing to our brother. Mm-hmm. But that's within God's will as well. Doesn't let him off the hook. Right. Yeah, and, and Scripture clearly teaches that kind of compatibilist view. Uh, another example is Peter's preaching on Pentecost about the cross. Right. Wicked men put him to death, and then God foreordained it. These two things were not at odds. That wicked men acting wicked... Uh, did this thing, and Jesus saw them being so culpable that he felt the need to pray, uh, forgive them. They'll need to be forgiven for this, even though this is God's plan for ordained from before the foundation of the earth. Uh, so certainly, yeah, I think a lot of people 
who really don't quite understand the issue of free will, like the Calvinist Arminian debate or, or uh, the idea of sovereign grace, um, they think that you pull the rug of will out from underneath, when really all it does is say, yes, you are free to do what you want, but until Christ redeems you and regenerates you, what you want to do will be completely tainted by sin. And I mean, the scriptures are full of those examples. So you're shackled, you're chained by sin, and God's got to set you free in order for you to be able to, to truly exercise your free will um, in a way that glorifies Him and, and will cause us to enjoy Him forever. So it says also all His creatures, not just humans, that means then, also sparrows, also bacteria. Yeah, I guess. Um, single-celled organisms that they didn't even know about at the time, right? All of his creatures. Plato even described nature as being subordinate to the deity, or as he called it, the perfect mind, um, which is the supreme governor of all things, the first cause, the unmoved mover. I think I'm conflating things here, but you get the idea. Uh, The idea that everything is subordinate to a plan uh, really does permeate a lot of different religious movements. Um, You may have heard, maybe just even on a movie or television, uh, the idea that Muslims will often say, such and such, if Allah wills it, Uh, which sounds an awful lot like what James tells us to say. I'm going to go here and do this and be successful if God wills it. If God permits, this is what I'll do. So if it's God's will, uh, anytime we kind of pray in those terms or think in those terms or wonder in those terms, we're acknowledging God's providence, specifically his governing providence. Uh, when we say all his actions in the answer here, good stuff, of course. When someone does something kind for you, you thank God, right? You thank them, hopefully, but you also thank God. You thank God for them, and you thank God that he brought them to you at that time when you were in need uh, of whatever they did, because it's God's governing that permits that. Evil stuff, well, yeah, Joseph's brothers, um, he permits and uses to good ends, even wicked acts of men. Uh, Acts 14, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Uh, Jesus also references God's kind of general providence in uh, the rain falling on the just and unjust alike. Uh, someone read for me Isaiah 10, 5 through 11. It starts with uh, Assyria, but not in that tone at all. Look at that. God's providence. Oh, well, here outside. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? 
as my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? So we see both in those two passages, the permitting, Acts 14, in past generations, he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, and even using to good ends, wickedness without, uh, even though his, his general uh, grace uh, or um, general providence brings rain and all that people need, it still it says that he allowed them to walk in their own ways. He does not hold them unculpable. The example of Syria being the rod of God's anger in his hands. He's using them to his end, and yet they're still going to be punished for the wickedness that they did. So uh, it's at this point, you have to say, um, I'm going to entertain two notions that seem to almost be contradictory and try and find the place in which that tension just makes me more stand in awe of God. Uh, I, I truly don't think there's a true uh, contradiction here, but there are people who would certainly want to say that. Uh, what are your thoughts? Is, is, there, is there a contradiction in saying God used this for his good purpose and then turned around and punished the people who did the thing uh, that he used? So the situation here is that God uses Assyria to punish his people. And then he punishes Assyria for what they do to his people. Is there a contradiction or some sort of hypocrisy in that? No. Why not? Because um, the, there, there's still um, opposed, opposed to God. They're still acting outside even though God is using their evil to punish his own people, they're still participating in evil and they're still opposed to God. So, um, so no, there's not, I don't think there's a hypocrisy or contradiction there. They're still, um, they still bear responsibility for their own sinful acts. Right, and, and perhaps what we see here, the tension might be, again, God's imminence and transcendence. Uh, that in his transcendence, he's far above, uh, you know, Mary sings about how he brings about the rise and fall of rulers and nations and kingdoms. And then on the intimate one-on-one level, we stand before him and answer for our sins. So, yeah, God uses the tapestry of uh, human actions to accomplish what he wants that's his governing providence, and yet he doesn't say, okay, well, you served your purpose, so you get a pass. No, he then holds everyone accountable for their sins. Uh, I would write down... Right, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not like, it, what's the queen for a day thing, right? You, you, the the uh, DA is like, all right, you tell me everything that you know about uh, Nunzio's coke running operation, and then you get a reduced sentence or you get off the hook. Uh, No, because in this case, no one has a choice whether or not to be part of God's overarching master plan. We all are. Uh, And yeah, there's no no time off for that. I think 
I think the other, or an opposing view to that, I mean, we believe in the sovereignty of God and that God, you know, so he, he's, a, he's in control. And uh, I mean, the opposite of that would be that he's just kind of, oh, he, you know, for say Israel, uh, he just kind of abandoned them or something like that. And he wasn't there or he wasn't involved in them being punished uh, for for their own turning against God and that sort of thing. It's like, and that's certainly not accurate. Right, so perhaps part of the solution, not solution, you don't want to resolve the tension. Part of the way to embrace the tension is to say, what's the alternative view? And the alternative view leaves God either evil or impotent rather than being good and omnipotent. And so, yeah, we have to recognize God's sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, deism or open theism. Yeah, right. And he's kind of hands off and, and oh, well, I didn't intend for that to happen, but oh well. You know. And it still happened to happen in a way that fulfilled all the prophecies. So lucky me. Yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, I would write down these two passages in regards to the cross being probably the best example of this, of God using evil for good. Uh, Acts 2.23 and Acts 4.28, both should be really familiar to you at this point. 4.28. And that's something that, that comes up regularly in those early days of the church. Uh, in fact, even as he's talking to people who had a hand in putting Christ to death, he says, you killed him. God raised him again, and that was his plan, and yet there is certainly no sense in which they stand uh, free and clear. No, they need to be forgiven, and they need the, the gospel. Well, it's interesting how, like, even in just that story, where people are bringing judgment on themselves, even if they are used as God's instruments, like where Caiaphas says, may his blood be on us and our children, or the crowd says, mm-hmm. whoever says that, like... So they're saying, no, that's fine. We don't, we don't need to not be culpable. We're happy with this. What about when we get into what seems like random things? You know, like, yeah, we can see it, God would use uh, the selfish acts of a king who's trying to thwart God's plan to still further his plan. But what about, I mean, if I flip a coin? Is that predetermined? I mean, do we live like... Are we in the matrix or we're automatons? This gets into <laughs> sophomore philosophy territory. Um, what about that? What about a roll of die? Is well, the result random or is the result... When they do that in scripture, the result is not random. They, they cast lots to divine God's will in certain parts of mm-hmm. scripture. So God must show his will through that. How come we don't do it, still do that today, then? <laughs> we probably could. <laughs> really? Baptist church would probably cast lots. We got an elder over here yeah, just said that. Lot, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you say that um, uh, a game of chance, or, I mean, we don't believe in luck or chance, do we? Right. I don't even call them potlucks. I call them pot providences. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but the whole dispensing thereof is of the Lord. Acknowledging that even if God's not speaking to his people through the casting of lots, he still is determining 
by his providence, how it lands. So, like, if you... <laughs> Childish Brain just went to, so what, like, whatever board game you're playing, the winner has been determined by God. We were playing Sorry the other day. I got stomped three times in a row. Yeah, you were upset about it. Like, that was God's will. Yeah. It was. He was trying to humble you. This is an interesting question. Um, but, like, if it doesn't have an application, I wonder how useful it is to keep thinking about it. Because as you play Sorry, you still are making your choices. You yeah. It seems to you as you live your daily life that you have free will and free choice. And you have to exercise it. And what we're saying is you do have free will. Right. So you can, yeah, you believe in the fact that God is controlling every atom in the universe, but, you know. It'll drive you crazy. Inside your next move and sorry still, so. <laughs> you got to put on a shirt in the morning, you know, and go to work. You don't control the, the role of the die, you know, unless, unless they're loaded. <laughs> Even if they're loaded, God's governing prominence is involved in it. Yeah. Who has loaded die? Who even says loaded die? It's the old timiest thing that's been said today. Alex, you seem like you're on the verge of saying something really brilliant. No. All right, yeah, that makes sense, that tracks. Alexander White, who's uh, somebody who wrote a commentary uh, on this stuff, calls this truth an awful truth. Now what he meant was it should inspire awe because he was writing in the olden times when they would get up and be like, oh man, it's the olden times. But when we think of that, I think a lot of people don't want to think about this because it seems like an awful truth in the sense of, oh, it's horrible. It's terrible. Um, we, don't, we don't like thinking about the fact that we are not utterly free, free agents, that there's something limiting our choice. Yeah. I think there's times when I think that you think that way, and then there's times when you, if you believe in, in God's providence, that you're grateful for it because choice becomes absolutely overwhelming and you think what if i made the wrong choice in my career what if i made the wrong choice about which school to go to what if i made the wrong choice about which friends to have you know like what if you made the wrong choice about who to marry every single choice you know and you follow that down the road i mean you would go nuts thinking like everything that's bad in my life then is my fault because i chose wrong right that's not a really great way to think. <laughs> it's a lot more comforting to think that God is helping you along. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I would think when we are um, most glorified in God and most satisfied in Him, and He's most glorified in us, rather, and we're most satisfied in Him, that we would find comfort in the idea of His providence. I think it's more when we are thinking about our own autonomy right. and demanding, oh, I yeah, why, I, I need to be in control and yet, yeah, look what happens when we're in total control of our, even, you know, setting aside God's providence. When we have total control over our lives, we so often make such a mess out of it. Uh, I would, yeah, I'd rather have a, the safety net of thinking yeah. God is not going to leave me or forsake me. God is with me. If I pray for wisdom, he's helping me make the right decisions. If I, I can pray for, uh, you know, an open door of ministry. I can pray for the the patience and and the perseverance to get through something difficult and that God can provide those things because of his providence because like it's it's like uh, humans without God guiding is like children without parents you know it's like Lord of the Flies dogs without horses it didn't go well for them 
Now, I think too, part of this is that we tend to think, even, even believers, because we see the world through our own eyes, we have no other way to see it, we see ourselves kind of at the center of God's dealings, God's providential working. And so often we're confused by like, wait a minute, how is this best for me? And yet if we are able even to get a glimpse of God's point of view, that God is working these things out in such complexity and that what he's doing in my life, you know, it might not be for me. It might be for someone else. Uh, and it might be for his kingdom after I die, something that happens. That, and and to, to be able to trust that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him is freeing and, and comforting. And it means that when we face difficulty and when we struggle, it's not for nothing. It's not because I made the choice, I screwed it up, and now, I mean, maybe I did screw up, maybe I did make a bad choice, but even in that, God's providence continues to work. Let me read one more old-timey sermon illustration to kind of segue us into the next question, because we have time to start it. Sir Thomas Gresham, who built the Royal Exchange in London, you know, the Royal Exchange in London, was the son of a poor woman who, while he was an infant, abandoned him in a field. By the providence of God, however, the chirping of a grasshopper attracted a boy to the spot where the child lay, and his life was by this means preserved. After Sir Thomas had, by his unparalleled success as a merchant, risen to the pinnacle of commercial wealth and greatness, he chose a grasshopper for his crest. And becoming under the patron of Queen Elizabeth, the founder of the Royal Exchange, his crest was placed on the walls of the building in several parts, and a vane or weathercock in the figure of a grasshopper was fixed on the summit of the tower. Now you could say... You could choose that grasshopper just as kind of an ironic, well, I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for that lucky turn. Or you could say, wow, that's God used something so small and insignificant to preserve me uh, and see it as a, a reason to dedicate yourself to him. I wonder if we should all come up with new crests basing them on things from our lives like this. Aren't you a little jealous when you read that? He's got this cool story and he's like, oh, well, now my crest is a grasshopper and it's on top of the Royal Exchange and all over the walls. All right. Well, let's move on to, what's that? He had to grow up knowing his mom put him in a field. Yeah, that is a bummer. Uh, let's read question 12 here together. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? When God had created man... He entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Now, we are going to take some time and dive deep with this covenant stuff, and I need a whiteboard, so we're going to really get going on it next week. Uh, but just by way of introduction and discussion, what in your mind is a covenant? And what is its significance in the scriptures? Promise. You see a promise, you see an agreement. A binding agreement, it's like a contract. A contract, okay. A binding agreement, a contract. I always think it being a contract on God's part, that he's the one who's, this is what is, like a promise, 
with a result. Like he, he, it was a covenant and the promise of Abraham being the father of nations, right? There's an Abrahamic covenant, yeah, and that, that's part of the blessings. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it uh, tends to be an agreement between more than one party, or yeah, between at least two parties, and and in uh, I think in some cases in, in scripture, um, or typically the way a covenant would be executed, like a contract, would be both parties would agree to it, although in scripture God, I think uh, enters his name in both sides of the of, of the covenant and fulfills the, the aspects of the covenant himself. In every case? Not in every case, but in some cases. Yeah, so there has to be more than one party, like you say, even when it's made within someone, like Job saying I have made a covenant with my eyes. So it's a covenant between Job and his eyes. Um, that he won't look upon the virgin in, in, in lust. Uh, so a covenant is not necessarily an intrinsically religious thing. Covenant, this is God using language and structures uh, and terms that are familiar to people in order to reveal more of himself. A covenant would normally be between two groups of people, two city-states perhaps, to, to nations. We might think of the two kings coming together and making a covenant between a stronger nation, which would be called the suzerain, and then the weaker, which would be called the vassal. And there would be elements in the covenant uh, that would indicate all of the requirements for the weaker nation, all of the promises or requirements for the, the strong nation, if you hold to your end of things, we will protect you. When people come around and try and destroy you, we'll say, ah, no, 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 they're with us, and boom, we're there. But there's also, along with those blessings, curses. If you should break your end of things, here's what will happen to you. Uh, and these things were often sealed with blood. In fact, the word for uh, making a covenant is almost always in the, the Hebrew Bible, karat, which means to cut. Uh, because you remember with the Abrahamic covenant, they cut a bunch of animals in half. And uh, the idea is that in a normal covenant, the two people making them would walk between those. And the idea is, this is us if we don't hold to what we said we will hold to. Uh, it's a really, really serious thing. It's life and death stuff. It's existence and continuing of a nation or being stomped out by a stronger nation. Uh, and, you know, in the days where nobody's like, Wolf Blitzer over here at the Hittite Empire, look what they're doing. No, if, if you were unprotected, that was it. Your women were taken, you were killed, you were plundered, you don't exist anymore. So covenants were a very serious uh, deal. And our, our scriptures are not the only place we find God's making religious covenants with people. It's, it's a way in which people thought about God's relationships with them, their, their God's relationships with them. And so we can't, well, I've heard a few people get close, but it's hard to overemphasize the importance of covenant in the scriptures. If you have a grid for how you think of the Bible, covenant is probably one of the best ones. 
uh, it, it's, you know, you can, you can put a heading up there and you can say, this is where we are in covenant history. Uh, God defines himself again and again and again in the Old Testament as, as being marked by chesed, which uh, in the King James is often translated mercy, uh, sometimes translated loving kindness, really ought to be translated covenant loyalty. The God who is loyal to the covenant, even often when the vassal nation, his people, break the covenant and fail to live up to their end of things. Uh, so God frames himself for them to understand as being the ultimate covenantly loyal God. And the people often refer back to themselves in terms of being covenant people, all the way into our text for today in the New Testament. When people are really mad at Peter, why? Broke some terms of the old covenant. Went into the home of uncircumcised people. You're not allowed to do that. And we go, well, come on, get over yourselves. In their minds, they didn't recognize yet that these ceremonial aspects of that covenant had become obsolete. We can't blame them for saying, no, 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 we're God's covenant people. If you break the covenant, what will happen? What will happen to us? And so it's very serious stuff, and it's kind of, in a way, the crux of understanding how the Old Testament builds us and brings us and ushers us into the New Testament and to the foot of the cross uh, where we receive life. So we're going to talk about a view of two covenants, and then we're going to talk about a bunch of individual covenants that can be placed under those headings that are made throughout the Old Testament. And then we're going to look at what Paul tells us about these two covenants and how he pictures them as two mountains and two women. Uh, and I think it will be uh, eye-opening if you haven't heard it before or studied it before. If you have, it will be a good confirmation and reminder uh, that God set us up to be his people from the very beginning and to show us that we can't do it on our own. And like um, Jonathan mentioned, uh, when we get into a covenant of grace, God himself passes between the two halves of the slain animals. Because if Abraham walked through, the whole thing would fall apart. Uh, God says, I will be the one who is faithful, even when you're unfaithful. And I will be the one, when you break the covenant, to be killed. And ultimately, it is our God who's the one who's killed for our breaking of the covenant. He, he dies on a cross. Uh, and let's just, let's put it to, to bed there and we'll come back next week and talk about two covenants. Come back coffeeed up. It's going to get a little bit um, hard to follow if, you, if you're not. And uh, come ready for me and the way that I jot on whiteboards, which is sometimes uh, inscrutable. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providence, for your preserving us, for your governing us. We thank you for the way that you take care of us. And, and Lord, we often don't think about the fact that not only did you create us, but you sustain us every single day. And we, we just thank you for that, praise you for that. Lord, we know we, we daily uh, seem to try and tempt you to just wink us out of existence because we frustrate you with our, our lack of obedience or our lack of mindfulness or our self-centeredness. Lord, we thank you that you, you are long-suffering, that you are a patient God, a loving God, a God of covenant loyalty, uh, of loving kindness and mercy. 
And uh, we just pray that we would keep that in mind this week and that we would live our lives uh, as a response to that, uh, trying to show you our thanks, our gratitude for what you have done when you alone passed between the halves of the animals and said that you would uh, bring us from a place of, of being lost and under judgment to being found and full of life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.